0: Chapter 5 of The Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume 1 by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter 5 I was sent to college too soon. My elder brother had gone to Dickinson College at Carlisle, and so desired to have me with him, that I was taken from the academy. I had barely turned fifteen when I became a sophomore, and four months later was advanced to the junior class. I was the youngest in these classes. The college faculty was not surprised in ability by any in America. One chair, indeed, was inadequately filled that of mathematics. Its professor, Sudler, was learned, but had not the art of teaching. Although it was a Methodist college, best teachers had been secured without regard to doctrinal views, two of them, I believe, not being members of any church. One of these was William Allen, professor of chemistry, afterwards president of Girard College. Footnote while president of Girard College, Allen married a Unitarian lady of Boston. This was after I had become a Unitarian minister, and before the marriage I was consulted by the lady's pastor concerning my old professor's character. Happily, I was able to give the man, of whom I once stood in awe, a good recommendation, and especially felt sure that he had not enough orthodoxy to trouble a Unitarian wife. footnote. Spencer F. Baird, afterwards chief of the Smithsonian Institution, Washington, was never a Methodist, and his wife was a Unitarian. He was our professor of zoology. The classical department was represented by dr john mcclintock and dr george r crooks afterwards of drew seminary who were Broad Church methodists and original thinkers the professor of mental and moral philosophy and of english composition and rhetoric was caldwell who might have been a great man had he not died early at the head of these brilliant men was Robert Emory, who to every student was an ideal college president. In personal presence, in his manners, at once gracious and dignified, in his simplicity and the sweetness of his voice, he had every quality that could excite young enthusiasm. Robert Emory's biography of his father, Bishop Emory, is a scholarly work but it can convey no idea of the engaging personality of our president. When he called on my brother and myself, I cannot remember what he said, but after we left, we were ready to die for him. Professor Caldwell used to impress on us the importance of weighed words, exact statement, and tones sympathetic with the sense. His criticism of our compositions or of our accentuation in reading was uttered with such sweetness that the effect was always encouragement. We last met Professor Caldwell on February 28, 1848. He told us there would be no more Monday recitations as he was going away. Soon after, we heard of his death so ended the work to which many congregations have been indebted that never heard his name it was fortunate for us that there was in the faculty a man of such versatility as allen who in addition to his own chair chemistry and physics undertook the principal part of the subjects caldwell had to give up memorable were allen's instructions in rhetoric and logic the textbook was watley's but allen was an abler man than watley and often took us on excursions away from the books his fundamental principle was that the object of all eloquence is to carry one's point the finest writing or speaking that doesn't help to carry one's point is no eloquence at all but the reverse of it distracting attention from the one purpose I remember also an admirable talk he gave us on imaginative literature, especially fiction. He knew the kind of fiction that told the truth. Quote, and, gentlemen, whatever people may say against novels, such a work is always worth reading. Close quote. We called Professor Allen vulgarly Bully Allen, classically Corpus, on account of his rotund dimensions and his large ruddy countenance suggestive of the typical john bull his faults as a professor were that he occasionally experimented on students and did not always keep his temper in a recitation on rhetoric he once asked me a question about debating societies though it was apparently from the Watley open before him i had found there nothing on the subject and shook my head he then propounded the question to another of the class who answered fluently alan then dryly said the subject is not alluded to in the edition used by the class and the poor student's erroneous reply revealed that he had not studied the lesson assigned Allen tried a galvanic trick on one of our class Akhmuti, inviting him to take hold of the handles of a battery. The shock caused Akmuti to yell and jerk, the battery being smashed, causing fun to the class and visible anger in the professor. I wrote a description of this scene in magniloquent Homeric measure, which amused some fellow students, and, I suspect, was heard of by Allen, who seemed cross with me for a week. Baird, the youngest of the faculty was the beloved professor and the ideal student he was beautiful and also manly all that was finest in the forms he explained to us seemed to be represented in the man he possessed the art of getting knowledge into the dullest pupil so fine was his spirit that his explanations of all the organs and functions of the various species were an instruction also in refinement of mind. Nothing unclean could approach him. One main charm of Spring's approach was that then would begin our weekly rambles in Field, Meadow, Wood, where Baird introduced us to his intimates. About some of these, especially snakes, most of us had indiscriminate superstitions. Occasionally, He would capture some pretty and harmless snakes and show us with pencilings their difference from the poisonous ones he even persuaded the bolder among us to handle them he kept a small barrel of these pretty reptiles in his house and his little daughter used to play with them till once some lady entering the room gave a scream after that so ran the story The child had the usual horror of snakes after professor baird went to reside in washington i had opportunities of seeing him and his family often mrs baird was a lady of fine culture and much wit baird was very lovable in his home and to the end of life he remained a man in whom i never discovered a fault of mind or heart he awakened in me a love of science to which i had previously given little thought dr mcclintock made greek studies interesting and professor crooks had much skill in teaching latin we studied in manuals compiled by them jointly and it used to be said that to enter the kingdom of heaven one must study his bible carefully and his mcclintock and crooks prayerfully among the assistant teachers was Otis Henry Tiffany, afterwards widely known as an attractive pulpit speaker in Baltimore and New York. Another, Devonet, had a reserved manner, and the students thought him icy, but his young wife died, and Devanet sank into melancholy and did not long survive her. It was rumored that he took his own life professor mcclintock was a much occupied man his scholarship and literary accomplishments brought his pen into much demand for the methodist quarterly of which he became editor later and other publications he kept abreast of theological and philosophical inquiries in europe and america we were all proud of his reputation and careful not to encroach on his time he was the last man one might expect to see mixed up in any disturbance and there was wild excitement when on a bright june afternoon 1847 rumors spread of a fatal riot led by this same professor one kennedy of maryland had discovered his three fugitive slaves in carlisle and in an attempt to rescue them when led out of the courtroom he was mortally wounded. My friend Emery McClintock, F.R.S., son of the professor, possesses the documents in this once famous case. On June 2nd, Professor McClintock, casually passing the courthouse, was told of the trial of the fugitives and entered, finding, by speaking to the judge, that he, that is, the judge, was not acquainted with a law just passed McClintock went home and brought a copy of it. On his way out of the courtroom, he saw a white man raise his stick over the head of a negro, to whom he said, If you are struck, apply to me, and I will see justice done you. When McClintock returned with the new law, the case was already decided, and the fugitives were being led out to a carriage. Then occurred the riot. McClintock kept entirely out of it, and started homewards, stopping a moment to ask the doctor if Kennedy was badly hurt, and to express regret, and another moment to protect a woman. Near the courthouse corner, he states, I saw two men holding and apparently abusing an old negro woman. I asked if they had authority. The woman jumped towards me and threw her left arm round me. I released myself, and then told the officer that if he arrested the woman wrongfully, he did it on his own responsibility, and I should see justice done to her. The woman said that she had done nothing wrong, but only attempted to get her old man out of the melee, for fear he should be hurt. The officer said he saw her strike. I then asked, Did you see her strike? He said hesitatingly, at least I saw her raise her hand to her head. And then I think he let her go. In a short time after, I returned home. There was probably not an abolitionist among the students, and most of us, perhaps, were from slave states. My brother and I, like others, packed our trunks to leave college. A meeting of all the students was held in the evening in the college chapel at which President Emory spoke a few reassuring words. But we Southerners, wildly excited, appointed a meeting for next morning. At this meeting, June 3rd, we were all stormy under the door opened and the face of McClintock was seen, serene as if about to take his usual seat in his recitation room. There was a sudden hush. Without excitement or gesture, without any accent of apology or appeal he related the simple facts then descended from the pulpit and moved quickly along the aisle and out of the door when mcclintock had disappeared there were consultations between those sitting side by side and two or three seniors drew up resolutions of entire confidence in the professor which were signed by every one present ninety and sent to leading papers for publication. Being then little over fifteen, I could not appreciate all the reasons why thenceforth McClintock was to me the most interesting figure in Carlyle. The calm moral force of that address in the chapel, the perfect repose of the man resting on simple truth, I appreciated. To this day, whenever i think of him there arises that scene in the chapel it was to be some years yet before i could recognize the picturesqueness of the scene and see shining above his head the testimony in court of his enemy edward hutt mcclintock was the only white man by the negroes one white gentleman at least in the carlisle of eighteen forty seven was capable of concern about the Negroes. It would not have been easy at that date to find a professor in any American college willing to shield Negro slaves. It was fortunate that the celebrated trial of Dr. McClintock took place during vacation. When we returned after summer, it was to find our professor triumphant over a conspiracy of politicians all pro-slavery, to get him into prison or drive him out of town. Witness after witness, perjurer after perjurer, came forward to testify that McClintock was with those who struck down Kennedy, had said to the fallen man that he was served right, etc. Those acquainted with McClintock knew this testimony to be false. But how could it be disproved? A well-known citizen, Jacob Reem, testified that he was told by a man that he had overheard two men say they were resolved to drive McClintock out of Carlisle. The overheard conversation indicated a conspiracy, but Ream could not remember the name or locality of his informant McClintock's lawyer, Hon. William Meredith, tried in vain to get some clue. But when all seemed hopeless, Reem sprang forward and pointed to a man just entering the courtroom and cried, There's the man! The stranger, called to the stand, fully corroborated Reem. This new witness lived miles out of Carlisle, and his entrance at that moment, without knowing that his testimony was wanted, Extended that testimony to Providence also. The countryman's exposure of the conspiracy against McClintock greatly impressed the students and the community, but was not needed to clear him. Several lawyers, not anti slavery, testified that at the time when he was alleged to be in the riot, he was some distance off talking with themselves. The trial only bequeathed a heavy case against slavery it was the doom of that institution that every step it took outside its habitat left a track of blood one slaveholder seizing negroes seeking liberty outweighed the benevolence of ten thousand kind masters whose servants clung fondly to them we had a college infidel a junior named Willard. I do not remember any spirit of propagandism against him, but he was regarded as a curiosity, and students sometimes grouped themselves around him and plied him with questions. I was several times a silent listener, but cannot recall any of the questions or answers. I remember the grave look and calm voice of Willard, and also a certain wondering respect manifested by the questioners and listeners i was as yet without any inner ear to appreciate such discussions but i find in a little skit of mine dura studentis autumn of eighteen forty seven read in the bouquet a college periodical read in the chapel but not printed sentences which probably referred to him The Mohammedan system of forcing into the mortal corpuses of bored students the principles of natural and revealed religion, virtue and all, is got in vogue. Though he, that is the junior, be an infidel here, he is forced to give utterance to the clearest and most conclusive arguments in favor of Christianity, and, though unwilling, is forced to become either a convert or a hypocrite. When those words were written, I was a new junior in my sixteenth year, and not consciously skeptical. I can account for the sentences only by supposing that some incident had occurred in connection with Willard's recitations in Paley's Evidences and Butler's analogy i would naturally have been attracted by his independence a few months later i was myself a convert and joined the church january 16th 1848 and i find in my diary february 16th 1848 quote, "took a walk with willard" Close quote. this is my only mention of his name I do not believe that religion was ever discussed between us for i find myself without knowledge of this type of unbelief the aim of our professors was not to make us preachers but to make us leaders of men whatever our avocation we were trained to write and speak with care and to avoid anything like the heat and rant which so easily beset the preacher when dr mcclintock or dr crooks preached in our chapel it was the impact of mind upon mind and of heart upon heart not different in this respect from the manner of emerson and martineau a former president of the college reverend john p durbin was the most eminent orator known in the history of Methodism. He continued to preach occasionally at Carlisle, and no one who had ever been under the charm of his eloquence could ever repair to the rhetorical tricks of the popular pulpiteer. Durbin left his stamp on the mind of the college. Many of the students were preparing for the ministry. They were trained to the ideal of Durbin to conceive their theme perfectly study it and bring it to bear on the listener's reason to make it realistic with life and beauty or even with intellectual passion but there must be no thumping or loudness the sermon that made the deepest impression on me at college was one by professor crooks on charity his text was the whole of first corinthians chapter 13 After reading which, he exclaimed, What a coronet of brilliance around the brow of charity! He then proceeded to explain that the word translated charity is agapi, love, and proceeded to give love a beautiful coronet of his own. Whether then or before or afterward, A great love for crooks sprang in my breast i presently had him for my patron and i never knew a better man our friendship continued through life and his death bereaved me of one from whose affection no doctrinal differences could ever alienate me there was a keen competition between the belle and the Union Philosophical Societies for Newcomers. The place of bribery was an ice-cream saloon. If there is still such Elysian ice-cream in Carlisle, the most virtuous of our successors will not judge us severely for long hesitation before selecting our society. The Union Philosophical, which I joined six weeks after entering college, was charming. AND I SHALL NEVER FORGET MY ELATION WHEN... BUT THE SOCIETIES ARE SECRET. THERE WERE TOO MANY SPREES AMONG THE STUDENTS, BUT I REMEMBER NONE SUPPOSED TO BE HABITUAL TIPPERS. THERE WERE ADVANTAGES ON THE SIDE OF SOBRIETY AND GENTLEMANLY CONDUCT, NOTABLY THE PROSPECT OF RECEPTION AT THE sioris OF MISS PAYNE'S SEMINARY FOR YOUNG LADIES. THEY WERE, OF COURSE, ALL BEAUTIFUL and perhaps even of sharing their occasional rambles. And, indeed, the society of Carlyle generally was very attractive and accessible to gentlemanly students. The few sports we had were such as would be regarded as puerile in these days of college athletics. We even played hopscotch. The prizes of a college career in those days were not only scholastic but also intellectual and many types of individual mind and character were developed these were chiefly displayed at the saturday declamation when the chapel was crowded with ladies to me it was indeed a revelation to find so many great men and refined ladies belonging to a sect which in fredericksburg was in dismal contrast with the Episcopalian and Presbyterian churches. To hear such learned and polite people talking about conversion led me to think seriously about it. I knew that my parents were anxious that I should be converted, and that nothing could cause greater joy in our household than the tidings that I had experienced religion. So I went to the mourner's bench, under no fear or excitement, having determined on the step in my own room. After my graduation, 1849, I wrote some notes about Carlyle, among them the following. Quote, about the first of the year, 1848, they were holding prayer meetings down at Mr. Nadal's church, and after a few nights had one mourner, as soon as i heard that there was some prospect of a revival i got my lessons well early in the afternoon and went down there with the full determination to go up to the altar to be prayed for as soon as the invitation was given i went forward my going up shocked a great many people and soon that night there were many other students among them my brother peyton i myself had very little feeling or conviction of anything, but I was resolved never to stop from that moment until I enjoyed religion in my heart, if there was such enjoyment to be had. My feelings were aroused full soon enough, and I had little cause to complain of apathy. In my own room, in the afternoon of the ninth day of January, I first felt peaceful AND PROFESSED RELIGION TWO SUNDAYS AFTER BY JOINING THE METHODIST Episcopal CHURCH. THE IMMEDIATE FRUITS WERE THAT I TOOK A CLASS IN THE SUNDAY SCHOOL, SANG IN THE CHOIR, AND BECAME ACTIVE IN THE COLLEGE TEMPERANCE SOCIETY. THEN MY HEALTH BROKE DOWN, AND MY SIXTEENTH BIRTHDAY FOUND ME IN BED WITH CHILL AND FEVER my father came on and took me home on our way he was visited in baltimore by rev dr bond for whose son he had sent for medical advice the elder bond was then famous as the leading writer in the christian advocate and journal the great organ of methodism beside my father the doctor appeared small but his stature seemed to grow as his clear voice sounded, and his dark eyes flashed fine lightnings. It was worth an illness to see this intellectual leader of the church and listen to the conversations between him and my father. Their talk was on church politics, which were then assuming a very serious character. Slavery had already divided the Methodist church, The great baltimore conference extended through northern virginia and was making herculean efforts to maintain its hold there in the face of the rising pro-slavery agitation everything as bond well knew depended on my father and by that long conversation i learned the whole situation and by what efforts he was holding the churches in our region loyal after the succession of the Methodist Church South. End of chapter 5